As you're seated, we turn then in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we come near to the end of the chapter, verse 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, as we take up the series we have on conversion, looking now at the new goal that is given to the converted. Now, for the sake of some context, we'll back up in our reading just a little bit, and we'll read from verse uh, 25. So, 1 Corinthians 10, reading from verse 25 onward. Paul says, Whatsoever is sold in the shambles that eat, asking no question for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's. The fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks? Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Particularly there, verse 31, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. It is a great encouragement to know that children here are able to answer a question that even some of the most educated in the world cannot question, of course, is what is the chief end of man? What is man's great purpose? When you cut through all of the secondary things, all of the things that make life what life is, all of the relationships, all of the privileges, all of the duties, all of the responsibilities, all of the circumstances, all of the context, how do I isolate the one guiding point of life? Of course, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What a simple and yet full expression well representing the teaching of the Bible. And so, brethren, as we talk of a new goal, we don't mean that the right goal for unconverted men isn't to glorify God, but we do mean this, that only the converted are given now hearts and resources to pursue that goal instead of those far inferior goals which are fixed upon their own lives. So in recent sermons on this topic of conversion, we've thought of the new treasure that the converted one finds, which is Christ Himself. There's no greater treasure to the Christian, to the believer, than Christ Jesus. We've talked of as well the new life that the converted experience, that they are given life in Christ, by Christ, for Christ. We've talked of many other things, but today we wish to look at the new goal. Our catechism uses language chief end. That word end is that notion of goal. What is the thing 
that orients our attention and toward which we give all of our diligence, whether as a wife or as a husband, whether as a student or a teacher, whether as a pastor or a, a, a congregant, what is this new goal? Well, you'll notice our text. Our text is in the context of eating certain foods. And this was a very important question for the early church. It is certainly still a relevant question for us today because of various misunderstandings. But you can understand this because, of course, under the Old Testament, there were certain foods that were not to be eaten. And so it is in the book of Acts, of course, that Peter receives a vision of all manner of unclean animals lowered down and God saying, rise, slay, and eat. And Peter's saying, nay, Lord, I've never eaten any unclean thing before. And God says, call not thou unclean what I call clean. And Peter then perceives not only the ceremonial parts of these dietary restrictions, but he sees now he's permitted to sit with Gentiles, a far greater issue at that time. But there were still issues. Corinth, of course, was a pagan city. You can actually look and see the remnants in Corinth of idolatrous temples. And Peter, or rather Paul, would have been familiar with that very setting. Well, the Corinthians would have been converts from those places. And so here's something important to realize. There were certain sacrifices that were offered to pagan gods, which then the meat that was not eaten by the temple priests or others that were associated with the pagan worship, those animals, the meat that remained, would then be sold in street shops. And so this caused some issue of conscience, which Paul was dealing with. Notice, as we read earlier, Paul has said, whatever is sold in the shambles, the shops in the streets, eat it, asking no question for conscience' sake. Don't say, well, was this offered to an idol? Did this come from the priests of that pagan god? No, no. Eat it. It's food. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Notice he says, verse 27, if any of them that believe not. So unbelievers say, hey, we're getting together for a feast. Go to their house. Whatever's set before you, eat asking no questions for conscience sake. Now, it's not, of course, a perfect parallel, but in our own culture, it's not uncommon for a neighbor to say, hey, we're having a barbecue or a picnic or a meal over here at our house. Why don't you come over and eat this food with us? Well, that kind of custom took place in ancient days as well. But notice in context, Paul says, when that happens, whatsoever set before you, eat it, asking no question for conscience sake. But then there's this clarifying. If any man, verse 28, say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols. Paul says, eat not. But notice what else he says. Eat not for his sake that showed it. And for conscience sake, verse 29, conscience I say not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? Now this is very delicate and needs some care before launching into this main point. The eating of certain foods, even foods sacrificed to idols, yet participating in none of the idolatrous things, 
was a matter for the Christian then and now indifferent. In other words, one could eat that food without any sin. However, one could also eat that food and sin. How so? Well, it's because the food itself as food could be eaten with gladness and thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for this food. I eat it. But if my conscience is struggling and I'm worried, if I eat this, am I somehow participating and supporting this idolatrous arrangement, then I should not eat it because my conscience is weak and struggling. Well, if I stand, as Paul says, and I feel the liberty to eat this food while I'm not participating in any of the idolatry, but if a brother of mine or even a pagan says, this is offered to idols, then I will abstain from it because I don't want to cause the weaker conscience to struggle. Now brethren, this is somewhat, not as far as we think, but somewhat removed from us today. A closer thing to move the context and help us think about it is perhaps in the use of the moderate use of alcohol. So drunkenness is everywhere condemned. There's no place in the life of the Christian for drunkenness. The Lord's Word says, drunkards shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so for anyone to say, well, alcohol is indifferent and so on, and I just get a little tipsy on occasion and so on, and you know, I I had a little too much and whatever else, the Lord's Word is clear and irrefutable. Your drunkenness is a sin that scandalizes the name of Christ. But that doesn't mean the moderate use, which does not lead us to drunkenness, is forbidden. And when it is that we drink alcohol, for instance, wine at the Lord's Supper, or we're at our homes and whatever else, and we have that without getting drunk, and we rejoice in the Lord's goodness because wine maketh glad the heart, as the Scriptures tell us, We receive the Lord's good things with gladness to Him. But what if happens that perhaps we're at a restaurant and a friend of ours who's a fellow Christian has struggled with drunkenness or perhaps their father or mother were drunkards and they abused it and they struggle and they're, they're working through it and they're saying, I just can't get myself to it and so on. It's for us to abstain from it for that time. Why? Because we want to serve the conscience of our weaker brother. Now, why do we labor this? Because you'll notice the text says this, Whether therefore ye eat or drink. Notice the end of the verse. It doesn't say do all to your own knowledge. Do all in accordance to your own persuasion. Do all according to your conscience, to your liberty, to your decision. It says do all to the glory of God. Your liberty is to be exercised for God's glory. Your use of indifferent things is to be used in exercise for God's glory. Now once more before moving on, you can think of three categories that the Bible represents to us and history has helped clarify in thinking through this. There are things that are unlawful, forbidden things. So for instance, it is never permissible, it is never right to lie. 
Now, people have tried to challenge that and say, what if the Nazis show up at your door and you've got Jews in the house and so on? Well, I can't find anywhere where it condones lying. I can find places where it condones silence. I can find places where it condones me willing to suffer rather than to betray others. But I can't find places, even when others have lied, that the lie was commended of God. The simplicity of the commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, does not come with the uh, uh, allowance except when it's for a cause of righteousness. In fact, the Bible says no lie is of the truth. No lie. So we can say this, it's never lawful to lie, just as it's never lawful to commit adultery. We don't say, well, you know, my spouse and I have fallen out and my husband doesn't get me anymore and there's really a lot of distance there and, you know, I'll still live in marriage, but this other man, he really gets me and I'm going to, you know, we kick it off and so on. Or a man, my wife, she's, you know, she's into other things. We've lost contact. The kids have raised up and, you know, we've drifted apart and we're content to sort of live together. But this other woman, you know, she really gets me. And so, well, it should be good and so on if we commit adultery. And the Bible would say, you're out of your mind. This is fundamentally and most clearly forbidden. That's a thing unlawful. It's never right to do. It's never permissible in any circumstance whatsoever. But then there are things that are lawful. Not just in our way of saying it's lawful, you can do it, you can't, you don't have to, but rather commanded. And if the Lord has commanded it, it's mandatory. Scriptures present us several things. For instance, it is mandatory that we honor our father and mother. It's mandatory that we honor authority over us. It's mandatory that we remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We don't come to some Sabbath days and say, you know what, I couldn't find a different way to do this, so well, I'm just going to go to the restaurant. Or, you know what, I failed to think ahead, and so now I'm going to have to go to the store. The circumstances in those cases are off, and the thing that is commanded is to be honored. And so when it's commanded, we have to do it. But then this third category, things indifferent. It's neither commanded as necessary, nor is it forbidden as unlawful. This is where the Christian is given liberty. They can do it. They don't have to do it. But the circumstances then will inform us one way or the other. So foods are a matter indifferent for the new covenant Christian. To eat or to abstain is a matter of circumstance motive and purpose. Now, why do we labor this so much at the beginning? Because you'll notice the text demands we understand this. When it says, whether therefore ye eat or drink, whether you do it or you don't, do all to the glory of God. But then notice, it's not just talking about things indifferent. Because inserted there in verse 31, or whatsoever ye do, so whether you eat or drink, whether you do this in the thing indifferent or not, but also whatever you're doing, when you're obeying the Lord, when you are abstaining from sin, when you're doing the right thing, when you're abstaining from the wrong thing, the whole of your focus is to glorify the Lord. This revolutionizes 
the whole of everything you do. So whether you're engaged in aspects of Christian liberty, whether you're engaged in aspects of Christian morality, whether you're engaged in aspects of obeying the Lord, worshiping the Lord, serving others, whether you're opposing the world or doing your job diligently, whether you're at play, at recreation, at work, sleeping, eating, drinking, everything you're doing is always to be done to God's glory. When you're teaching your children, God's glory. When you're spending time with your spouse, God's glory. When you're going to bed, God's glory. The meal you're eating, God's glory. The friends you're spending time with, God's glory. The work you're doing, God's glory. Everything for the converted one is revolutionized to fix on this one thing. I breathe for God's glory. My whole fundamental existence is transformed to this solitary, simple focus that I do all to God's glory. Whatsoever ye do, all things, lawful, indifferent, any category, all of it's to be done now to God's glory. Now those of you who are here this morning will see some providential connection as In Luke's Gospel, we were considering Christ testifying of greatness in the world versus greatness in His kingdom. And the greatness in His kingdom was a denying of ourselves in order to lovingly serve others to God's glory. Here, in some sense, is an extension of that very point. And so we wish to look at several things to help us understand more fully. Firstly, the meaning of of glorifying God. Secondly, the reason. Thirdly, the way of glorifying God. We need not be long in these things, but we think that they are self-evident in many ways. So firstly, then, the meaning of glorifying God. What this means fundamentally is that the chief, the main aim in everything that the Christian does is targeting the honor of God. This doesn't remove secondary things, right? We eat good food, a well-balanced meal, for good health. But the reason we do that is that with our bodies, we may then serve the Lord. You see, so the secondary things we're engaged in is fundamentally targeting the honor of the Lord. You see this embedded all throughout various activities commanded to the Christian. Just as one example, as we've touched on it in somewhat recent time, you can look at Ephesians in chapter 5. When it gets to the household ordinances, verse 22 and following, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. So a, a duty for the wife is to bring herself under her husband and honor him. But notice, it says... Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. So the posturing of her soul under her husband is actually targeting something greater than her husband. She's seeking to honor the Lord. And similarly, husbands, love your wives. But notice, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. And you can skip ahead. Verse six, or chapter 6, verse 1, Children, 
Obey your parents. Notice the language. In the Lord. And so on. This permeates all that is being done. So that Paul can say, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Christian liberty is not an abstracted focus of the Christian. The exercise of Christian liberty is an exercise targeting the glory of God. Paul explains that when he says in verse 33, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. I'm doing this ultimately to promote the glory of God and the saving of sinners. The chief purpose in all that we do as those converted by God's grace is to promote His honor. This necessarily means that then if this is the chief purpose, the meaning of glorifying God demands that we submit to the will of God. You can understand this for a moment. You know, if we say, if a wife says to her husband, you're the only man for me. And then the man says, okay, well, uh, here's how we're going to set up the home. And the wife says, nope, I've read this book. We're going to do it a different way. you got a contrast there. The child says, you know, mom, I'm going to honor you in all that you say. And the mom says, okay, this is bedtime. Nope, that's not what I want. My friends get to stay up. There's contrast there. There's a problem there. Well, similarly, when we get all jazzed up and energetic, yes, God's glory and you know, glorify and enjoy God and we read the best books and all these things, and yet then the Lord brings His Word to us and says, stop this. And we say, I don't know if I really want to stop that. My friends do that. I find good pleasure in it. I find delight in it and so on. Watch your tongue. You know what? Do we have to be so careful about what we speak? how we speak, the words we use. You know, let's not be too tight and so on. You know, manage your time well. You know, can't I just let loose sometimes? Don't I get some me time in all of this? You know, invest yourself in your wife. Now, wait a second. I work, I labor, I do all of these things. I'm fixing the house. I'm doing that. All of a sudden, it becomes apparent. The will of God as revealed in the Scriptures is the test by which we will see whether we're sincere in honoring God. The Word of God. How can it be that we glorify God if we set aside His Word? How can it be that we're seeking His honor if we set aside the will revealed to us? So think of the Great Commission. Christ says, All power in heaven and earth is given unto Me. And He commissions them, Go to the uttermost parts of the earth, But notice he says, teaching them all things whatsoever I commanded you. So the rule for the church is God's word. Deuteronomy 12, same thing. How do we tell as well in other places whether a prophet is real, true, or false? It's whether what they say is in accordance to his word previously revealed, and if it comes true. All of these things are confirmed again and again in God's providence. We're reading or singing through Psalm 119. And the Word of God is central. So that, to put it clearly, there is no setting God's honor first if there is the neglecting of His Word. This is why as the Christian grows, it is not natural in the strictest sense, but it's graciously natural that the Word begins to permeate more of their time. And they start to say, you know what, I can't believe that for five years I have found it hard to read 
five minutes a day. Or I can't believe that for the first ten years of our marriage, we've never had family worship. And it's not just out of an outward constraint. It's because there's conversion that says, I want to know this God who has been rich toward me. And so the whole of His Word is starting to be taken up. The Word becomes central because there's no other way of glorifying God than by believing His promises, embracing Jesus Christ, which is offered to us in the Scriptures, and in obeying His commandments. The Word of God must be central. Brethren, this tells us that it is not glorifying to God to follow superstition, however religious it might be. When people say, look at the glorious ceremonies that that church has or this religion has, look how deep and mysterious, how overwhelming with wonder it is. They must be devout. They must be religious. Look what Paul says in Colossians and chapter 2 when he raises up some of these things Verse 18, he says, Let no man beguile you in your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. Notice he says in verse 20, he says, Why are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men? which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility, neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. What Paul is saying is this. There are apparent religious actions that seem to display great devotion. You and I have seen it. Ash Wednesday comes around. People go to their church. They get ashes on their forehead. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, that's devout, right? Look what they're doing. We say, are you kidding? Like, where, where is this in the Scripture, number one? And how is that any mark of piety, number two? You know, on Fridays they come, we're not going to eat any meat. We say, okay, that's something that parallels every other false religion. But what we don't find among such circles is a consuming focus on what saith God in His Word. That concern is a concern of the converted Christian. I don't care about what granddaddy said if granddaddy was wrong. I don't care about what pastor so-and-so said if pastor so-and-so, however full the church, however many ministries, however many billboards he may have, however big his entourage may be, if that minister is not preaching the Word of God, it doesn't matter. It's the Word of God because I'm not interested in glorifying Grandpa or glorifying Minister X or glorifying this tradition or that tradition because my whole purpose is to glorify God. But you need to realize that that will set you in opposition to everything else in the world. If you take that seriously as a converted Christian, you will run into conflict not just with the world, but with some who are Christians who have failed to see that to glorify God means the Word of God is our only rule of faith and practice. So brethren, realize that this meaning is a meaning that is full of consequence in your life. Secondly, the reason 
for glorifying God. Why is it that one should so totally, comprehensively give himself, his household, his time, his life, give herself all of her gifts, all of her influence unto the Lord? That we even think in terms of, how is this going to benefit me serving the Lord? And so think about this for a moment just to make one point. The Christian gets concerned about his health not because of his appearance to others. The Christian gets concerned about eating right foods, getting generally good sleep, and all sorts of things, not because it's a healthy lifestyle, but rather because that enables him or her better to serve to God's glory. And so to be as best as we're able to manage and to oversee these things, it puts us in a position under the Lord's kindness to serve more faithfully. Why do we read the Bible? It's not that so we can win Bible quizzes and say, look, in my room, you know, as I was in fourth grade, I found the verses of the Bible the quickest. Or look, in my room, all the degrees I have of theology and divinity and doctorate and masters and so on. None of that's the purpose. The purpose of pursuing the education, garnering facility with the Scriptures, is that so in the end, we would be better equipped to serve and glorify the Lord. Now, what's the reason for such comprehensive attendance upon this focus? Well, we can say firstly, think of what Paul says when he simply says, to the glory of God. Think of that simple word, three letters, God. You know, most people spell that concept with three other letters, M-A-N. Most people put man as God because most people are doing the things they do for the glory of man, for the glory of themselves, for the honor of themselves, to give themselves pats on the back, to get applause of others, to do all of those things. But here it is focused on the one who is worthy. The very fact that He is God informs us that it is right and appropriate that we do everything for Him. When we start to see that as well, it will start to, and it's difficult, brethren, it's tremendously difficult to tear back, as it were, and peek behind the veil to see this. But you will see how utterly vain everything you've done to your own praise is. It's embarrassing fundamentally shameful when we discover the things that we did to bring honor to ourselves. Now the world doesn't care with all of its braggish ways. It goes forth and you get people with all sorts of attention on themselves. You know, athletes pointing at themselves. Rock stars pointing at themselves. YouTube stars pointing at themselves. Everyone concerned about themselves. And shamefully, many times we've been the same. Brethren, what a travesty it is when it is that we focus on dust and glory in it. God is essentially glorious and worthy. When we serve for any other purpose as our primary purpose, we're targeting what Paul calls the refuse. I count all as dung for the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. There's going to be a day when that hits us, whether it hits us in this life 
or in the life to come. The reason for focusing all of our attention upon God is because, to say it simply, He is the only one who is worthy of any attention you have. When Christ says, for instance, there's one thing needful, the majority of the people who have heard that verse have nodded their head and then lived opposing that. If there's really one thing needful, if there's actually one thing needful, how would your life change right now? If you weighed that for a moment, one thing that is absolutely necessary. How would your contentment change right now? Perhaps your actions wouldn't. Perhaps in the Lord's grace, He's brought you in some conformity in your behaviors. But maybe it is that though you acknowledge it and are seeking in some sense to honor Him, maybe it is that you're not content because deep down you feel like you don't have what you need or want. But if you have Christ... You have the one thing needful. If that's the case, is it not then true as well that He is the one worthy? But there's more. We could list many reasons, but for the sake of time, we need only say what Paul says in this very epistle related to the same topic. He is the one who has redeemed us. Remember, a converted Christian, a converted person is one who has been brought from death to life, one who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. If you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, notice the similar argument when Paul is now speaking about things unlawful, fornication. He says, verse 19, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? He says, Furthermore, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Verse 20, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Christian, you need to come face to face with this. When you wake up in the morning and you go and see your face in the mirror, you need to say, that face does not belong to me. It belongs to God. When you go about your day and you're sitting down with your calendar and you're thinking, what do I have to do today? You need to look at the calendar and say, this day is not my day. It's God's. These possessions are not my possessions, they're God's. This life is not my life, it's God's life. I am owned by Him. There is an imagery which may strike great difficulties to us, but the imagery is legitimate. God owns us, but not with the forceful purchase of earthly slaves. What is the price that God gave to purchase His people. It was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that transforms the thought. Because the idea is actually this. You were enslaved to all manner of gross, abominable wickedness with the only verdict hanging over your head, condemnation. You shall perish in hell. And yet, God sends His Son to pay for the price and His blood liberates you from the shackles of sin, judgment and death, and He brings you into life and holiness and fellowship 
and all by the blood of Christ. So at the end, the Christian can say, I'm no longer my own. I used to be my own. I used to be mine when I was in darkness and death and damnation. But praise God, I'm not my own anymore. I now belong, body and soul, to God through Jesus Christ who gave Himself for me. Brethren, the power of redemption, the message of redemption is a most weighty reason that you are to spend every breath, every second, in a conscious and determined purpose to glorify God. There are stories, of course, of heroic self-sacrifice where first responders put their line on or their life on the line to rescue someone. And sometimes there'll be interviews. And the one who is rescued, you see it, you feel it. They are indebted with gratitude to this individual who they did not know by name and yet who rushed into a burning building or went to a car that was near uh, unto uh, being cast over a cliff to rescue someone from a flood. All of these things that they didn't know before and as they're being interviewed, it's palpable. You can feel it. The one who was rescued is grateful and would happily do anything within His power or anything within her power to show forth the gratitude to the One who delivered them from the danger. The Christian has been rescued from the jaws of damnation. It's mocked today. I don't know why, apart from the godlessness of our age. But when Jonathan Edwards used the image of the wrath of God suspended over the head of the sinner by nothing more than the thin line of a web of a spider. That imagery should haunt us with this thought. The only thing that's keeping the wrath of God from falling upon the unconverted one is the hand of Him who despises the sinner. And yet, what did God do? For the Christian, He took that wrath, placed it over His Son's head, and let it go. So that the wrath came crashing down upon Jesus Christ who willingly endured it. Who took it up and said, Lord, not my will, but Thy will be done. And who delighted to save His people. And when we realize from what we've been saved, how we've been saved, by whom we've been saved, surely we should outdo any temporal rescue. Interviewed. Why is it that you're willing to count everything else as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? Why? This Savior saved me from what I deserve. This Savior died on the cross for me. This Savior who is the object of the adoration of the Father for all eternity willingly humbled Himself for me who was in a self-inflicted damnation. I who heaped it upon Myself He entered into the clutches of death and He didn't pull me out. He threw me out and He took all that I deserved upon Himself. How could I not with absolutely every breath breathe everything for Him? How could I not say every second is Yours? Everything in my life is Yours. You've saved me from what I deserve. And You've done what no one else could do. Brethren, the world is rightly astonished at times 
at what Christians are willing to undergo for their Savior. But in some sense, the Christian should never be astonished because the Christian realizes that the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of anything He claims from me. It's all His. He calls me to suffer and die. Praise God, it's His to take. He calls me to endure hardship, to suffer the turning away of family. He calls me to lose my job for His sake. He calls me to have to sacrifice certain things to honor Him. He calls me to follow Him though the whole world stands against me. So be it. He owns me and He saved me by His blood. He calls me to lose friends for following Him. It doesn't matter to me because He is mine and I am His. He calls me at times to spend whole nights fasting and weeping. Praise God, it's His life. He calls me at times to give myself to put off other things so I can dig more deeply into the Word, so I can be prepared to lead my wife and lead my children. It's His prerogative. I am not my own anymore. I belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ. Brethren, if that seems extreme, you don't understand redemption. You don't understand the cross. If it seems extreme to you to say to the world, you don't matter. You don't understand the cross. If it seems extreme to you to say, I am open to being tortured for Christ, then you don't understand the cross. Because the most excruciating, we don't speak lightly or frivolously, the most excruciating torment that the Christian is exposed to in this life is infinitely beneath what the Lord has rescued you from. He has given you salvation forever. He has given you heaven. And yet there are times where we tremble at the voice of a servant girl like Peter. The woman says, the young lady says, this little girl says, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? I don't know what you're talking about. The same man who earlier said, just hours before, though all should forsake you, yet not I. I am ready to die for you. Servant girl comes. You're one of his disciples. No, you don't know what you're talking about. Three times he denies the Lord Jesus Christ. What had Peter lost sight of? The glory of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And brethren, every time you and I compromise our witness, compromise our following, what is guaranteed happening at that point is our eyes have drifted from Christ and we've lost sight of the reason. There will be no glorifying of God unless our souls are fixed upon the Savior Jesus Christ. This is why, young people, you must saturate your life with Christ. It's not just you must fill your life with the Bible, but understand the message of the Bible. The Bible portrays Christ. It holds forth salvation by grace. This is why, husbands, you are to be leaders in your home, searching the Scriptures, because you have a calling to lead your wife in Christ and your children in Christ. Children, 
This is why you have need to search the Scriptures and embrace them. Because God has called you unto Himself. And He says, I will be your God. You will be My people. So some children say, well, you know, my friends. It's not children though, is it? Because really adults say the same thing. Well, you know, my friends. Or, well, you know, my parents. Well, you know, my family. Well, you know, my tradition. Well, you know, this difficulty and so on. Why can't we say to everyone else, well, you know, Christ. Because we say to Christ, well, Christ, you know, my family doesn't really agree with that, so, you know, bear with me as I compromise. Or we say to our job, well, you know, I'll follow you. And we say to Christ, I'm going to have to sit this one out because my job wants me to do this, that, or the other. Why don't we say to our job, to our families, to everyone else, well, you know, I'm obligated to Christ. And it's not just an outward obligation. It is an inward delight whereby I am compelled with gladness to say, nothing is mine in this life because Christ, it is all yours. Well, brethren, the fundamental reason is not only God's inherent glory, but the magnitude of the grace shown to the converted one in the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, then finally, the way of glorifying God. How is it that this is to be done? Brethren, there's much that comes from this, but what you can see we trust is that if it is we are to glorify God, we must keep in front of us this grand truth and motive of Jesus Christ Himself. I wish to examine you for just a moment with this question. Let's start with this question, do you read the Bible? Because brethren, quite frankly, our culture is weak, inherently weak on this. And we satisfy ourselves with all sorts of nonsense as excuses which really don't measure up. They measure up to the world's standards, of course. But if you're not taking in God's Word, brethren, you are going to flounder in the face of temptation. Because what's the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. The only weapon the Christian has is God's Word. You have to be taking in God's Word, not just through reading, through sermons, through meditation, through studies, and so on. But the question, of course, is are you taking it in? But that's the only start of it. The next question has to be, are you communing with Christ in it? Because if you're just reading the Bible for facts and figures, as helpful as those might be to help facilitate understanding and access and so on, if you are missing the sum and substance of it, Jesus Christ, His person, His works, His offices, His benefits, all that He is, we preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the summary of Gospel preaching. The person of Christ, the work of Christ, the benefits of Christ. When we search the Scriptures, we should be as greedy people looking over the treasure God has given us. You know, some people would think, well, if I had the money of Bill Gates, there are times I would just spend hours just look at how many digits are there. What can I buy with all of this money? What can I do? And yet we have the immeasurable treasure of heaven in giving us Christ 
And we should satisfy ourselves with this. Searching the Scriptures to unturn, to turn over and discover new riches which are ours in Christ. The way of glorifying God is first and foremost by a communing with Christ as He's made known to us in the Scriptures. There can be no communing with Christ but by the Word. And yet by the Word, it must be that we're seeking communing with Christ. This then leads us to an inward intention, conscious and deliberate. When we wake up in the morning, it should be almost a mantra, but far more than that. This day is yours. This tongue is not to speak a word except it's for your glory. These hands are to be used to do things for your honor. These feet are to walk in the course that you would have me to walk. Now, most of the time that means for men especially, it's going to be going to work, working hard. And for others, the same thing. And for students, going to school and cooking meals and other such things. But the whole of what we're doing now is being done consciously and deliberately for God's glory. So we glorify God by communing with Christ, learning of Him, instructed by His Word, sustained by His grace, and then with an inward intention, conscious and deliberate, that all that I'm doing is to be to His praise. Oh, brethren, so much more, of course. We close with this. Just for a moment, consider that you lived a different life than the life of glorifying God. How can you find a better example of this than in Christ's parable of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man had made a fortune. And he had said to himself, Self, soul, you know, take your ease. And there's food stored up. Eat, drink, and be merry. Right? This is the mantra of the age. If I could just have enough where I could get off and stop working and live and you know, go to trips and do all these things, then I'll have arrived. There's a person who glorified something other than God. And at the end, what happens? Thou fool, this day thy soul is required of thee. All that he had lived for, all that he enjoyed, in a moment, upended, boom. And the vanity of such an end, however applauded by men, is experienced, not just known in the mind, but experienced in the torment of body and soul in heaven. But you look at Lazarus, this poor beggar man who trusted in God through Jesus Christ. And there he was despised of men, a man whose the only companions were dogs which licked his sores. And he's hastened into Abraham's bosom. And he's delighting in the worship of God and is glorifying God. You take that for a moment and you ask, whose life in the end was better? Lazarus, though humiliated and shamed in this life and following and serving the Lord, or the rich man who is well exalted. And realize this, brethren, you will be no loser that forfeits the world in order to glorify Him who loved you and gave Himself for you. Live with that in your eye and may it drive you to Christ that by Him, you would live for Him. Would you stand with me for prayer?